Welcome back to the Jacob Wolf Show. News to talk about today. Uh, first, kind of a very strange item that has come up. Uh, this is a story uh, that has come out now in the Daily Beast. It's it's very on message for that outlet to have uncovered a story like this, presuming that it's true, of course, because they have published a lot of fake news over the years. But this concerns a congressman named George Santos now, uh, or congressman-elect. This is somebody who ran as a Republican for Congress, and his entire uh, sort of brand is that he is a gay Republican uh, and that you should vote for him and he's gay and it's affirmative action. The whole, you know, TPUSA ethos, the Turning Points USA ethos, the people who promoted Lady MAGA, the Republican tranny, uh, the people who uh, promoted and created really out of thin air, uh, Rob Smith, your favorite gay black veteran Republican, I think is what he calls himself. This is right on message with all of that. This is what the GOP has been promoting for years is uh, gay. And, you know, they say that some 85% of Republican staffers on Capitol Hill are homosexuals. Uh, that seems about right based on my estimation. I'm not kidding, by the way. That's actually the percentage. It's a whole gay subculture in Washington, D.C. A lot of the Democrat staffers are gay as well. But the Democrat staffers tend to be women and the Republican staffers on Capitol Hill tend to be gay men. Well, the New York Times earlier in the week published a story poking holes in uh, Santos's uh, claimed resume, his background. It didn't seem to exactly be real at all. It all seemed to be fake, made up, fictional. Uh, but the Daily Beast is out with this story this morning. This is from Roger Solenberger. It uh, says, Scoop, George Santos made a historic run for Congress as an openly gay Republican because there are some other Republicans who are gay but not open about it. Uh, but he never told voters that just two weeks before he launched his campaign, he had been married to a woman. So in this case, appears to be an entire confabulation, an entire fiction launched and promoted by the GOP to say that this uh, Hispanic uh, congressional candidate was homosexual and in fact, he was not. He was married to a woman just two weeks before he launched his campaign. It was all fake. It was all fiction. None of it was real uh, whatsoever. And it's just kind of standard for the GOP. I mean, this is what they're all about. This is where the market's at. I remember when uh, Trump started retweeting me, I would get various Republican outfits that would reach out to me and they would say, uh, you know, Jacob, uh, we could really, we could do a lot with you. Are you, you don't happen to be gay, are, are you? I say, no, I'm not gay. I say, well, damn it, we could, you know, we could do a lot with you if you were gay. And it was half some kind of creepy, you know, casting couch style hitting on me thing. And it was half just profiteering off of this affirmative action takeover of the country that has not only happened with respect to race, it's happened with respect to sexual orientation um, or preference really is a better term, not orientation. And uh, it is as pervasive today or maybe even more pervasive within the Republican Party than it's ever been in the Democrat Party. And so it turns out the person was not gay at all, George Santos. He was married to uh, a woman just two weeks before he launched his campaign. Uh 
Somebody says here, why would you pretend to be gay? You lose GOP votes for that. Well, depending on the district, but because the GOP machine is so oriented towards affirmative action, they will put money behind your campaign to the extent that uh, it will overwhelm any votes you lost. And in the ads that you buy, you don't make a big deal out of the gay thing, but you make a big deal out of that on the national scene, which the Republicans use. It's like, why ask yourself if that's your assumption, then ask yourself why Turning Points USA hosts conferences with just any number of openly gay and in some cases closeted gay uh, personalities who are out there. I mean, look at that Scott Pressler character. He's six foot six. I mean, I've met I've met him. Nice guy. But he's six foot six. He's got long female styled center parted hair. And he doesn't merely speak like a flamboyant homosexual. No, he speaks like a woman. He speaks in the voice of a woman. So there's like the gay voice, which we all know, and the gay kind of way of speaking, which we're all familiar with. But then there's an even deeper degree to which some of some people, let's say they're transgender, will actually try to speak like a woman. I don't mean the urban gay voice. I mean, they will actually, you know, sound like Mrs. Doubtfire or something. You know, the movie character played by Robin Williams. That's Scott Pressler. And he is among the most promoted personalities by the GOP establishment, by Turning Points USA, you name it. This is somebody who is, at least to our knowledge, without any career skills, who is able to make quite a lucrative career, probably somewhere in the range. I mean, it wouldn't be enough for me to sell out. I, I can make far more money in the real world, but he probably makes one hundred and twenty dollars to $150,000 a year to tweet and to show up every couple of months at some conference and go up there and rouse everybody about how it's a big tent party and he as a sexual deviant is welcome in it. And they should be glad about that. And then they erupt in claps and they erupt in applause and that's just the party that we have. That's the party that we have. And I mean, he's just one of them. You've got, like I said, Rob Smith. You've got countless others. I mean, even more embedded within the establishment, you have somebody like, um, what's his name? Guy is his first name. But he's he's Guy the Gay, and he's on Fox News, and he's a, you know, kind of a national review style. I've met him as well. I mean, it's just a situation in which this is something that's heavily promoted. You have a lot of closeted gay uh, congressmen and senators. Well, several senators, a lot of congressmen who are closeted gays. Look at Madison Cawthorn. You know, and some people say, oh, that was just roughhousing. Well, I don't know. There's not a video of me out there shoving my genitals into a man's face in bed. It's never happened. Never would happen. So, you know, I'd never heard of that kind of roughhousing. I, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. I mean, it's just, it's very, very strange. So this is promoted within the Republican Party. And, you know, to the extent that I, I don't even really care about this, other than the fact that it's so illustrative of the Republican Party that we live with. And I am somebody who, you know, frankly, I'm a Republican. And, of course, on this show, I kind of call balls and strikes when it comes to who's doing good for the country, who's doing bad for the country and, and hurting the country and 
more times than not, it happens to be Democrats who are on the wrong side of that equation, and I criticize them. But I'm I'm quick to criticize Republicans when they're on the wrong side of it, or when they're destroying whatever's left of the party. And uh, as I said, you got to ask your Republican congressman. You need to ask them. Uh, you say, "Are you a conservative?" They'll say, "Yes, I'm a conservative." And you say, "Okay, well, you've been in Congress uh, twelve years, haven't you?" Yes, I've been in Congress twelve years. Well, what have you managed to conserve? What has any long-running Republican who's been in office a long time managed to conserve? What exactly have they conserved? Because they're a conservative, you know. What have they conserved precisely? I mean, they, they, they slowed down nationally funded Drag Queen Story Hour by two years. It, it took them till, you know, 2020 to do it instead of 2019 or 18. You know, I mean, what what exactly have they conserved? Almost, almost nothing. So they like this. Uh, there is social capital like this commenter Christian says in being an oppressed class, an oppressed group. And uh, so people are even, even willing to fake it. They divorce their wife two weeks before the race starts and, uh, you know, claim to be queer. It's just unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. They conserved uh, living standards for some of the boomers. Yes, that's true. Some of the boomers, if they live in the right neighborhood, have had their living standards conserved. Uh, they have lowered corporate taxes in a way that has been good for those boomers, 401ks, IRAs, etc. Yeah, they've done things like that. Sure. Sure. For some boomers, they've, they've done that. They've kept, high, you know, they've kept housing prices high. Uh, at the expense of younger generations so that boomers can get a reverse mortgage or sell their homes and move into a retirement home that's a little bit nicer than otherwise. Sure. Yeah, that's been done. Otherwise, there's not much. Okay, we got to move here uh, off of this story, just a minor story to start off the show. I want to give you a quick update here on Sam Bankman-Fried reports just out, I mean, really in the last 10 minutes before I started this show, uh, he will be released. Sam Bankman-Fried will be released on $250 million dollars bond, and he will be confined to his parents' home in Palo Alto, California, Silicon Valley, uh, you know, right there where Stanford is located. So he will be released on $250 million bond. He'll be confined to his parents' home in Palo Alto. I assume there'll be maybe electronic uh, ankle bracelet monitoring, close uh, pretrial services monitoring, but that's not the only news out. Uh, he was finally in a position in the last day that he waived his right to extradition. He was put on a plane back to New York, uh, escorted by very photogenic looking FBI special agents rather than the U.S. Marshals who would typically handle something like that. The FBI butted in and took over. Not surprising at all. Uh, $250 million bond sounds like a lot, uh, but I recall Tom Barrick was charged with violations of the Foreign Agent Registration Act and making false statements to the FBI. He was in a position recently after being charged in the Eastern District of New York, where he too had $250 million bond, and he beat all of the charges. All of the counts, acquitted on all counts in the Eastern District of New York. Now, you have to wonder, in that case uh, of Tom Barrick, if he had been in jail that entire time in the Metropolitan Detention Center, say, would he have been able to 
beat those charges. It's very hard. You have to be able to coordinate with counsel. It's very difficult to uh, run a particularly a white collar case from jail. It's very, very tough, uh, especially a federal white collar case. So he will be at his parents' home in Palo Alto. Unclear if he will be back on the press circuit or not. Uh, I wonder if there'll be a press gaggle at the home. I doubt it. Uh, California is a place where the the actual press that exists, I mean, the press has gotten lazy all around the country, but there's always been this bias towards the East Coast, always been a bias towards the East Coast, particularly the Northeast. So like if a small plane crashes in Westchester County, New York, it'll get some coverage on the national media for a you know certain period of time. If that happens in California, it maybe gets a passing mention, maybe. If it happens in the Midwest, forget about it. There's just a major bias towards the East Coast and national news. And it's gotten to the point where when you talk about like Avenatti's sentencing hearing in, in California in Santa Ana, um, because it's not even in downtown LA, say, very few reporters show up at that. I mean, I think there were like two reporters and there were, certainly wasn't paparazzi and all of that. Same thing even with the Harvey Weinstein trial uh, recently took place out there, just concluded in the last few days. Hardly any paparazzi, hardly any press. If you're anywhere besides, it seems, the Southern District of New York, uh, you are not able to draw press to something like this. So will there be a gaggle outside the house? I don't know. It's unclear. Uh, the business partners in this, uh, so far, Gary Wang and Carolyn Ellison have pleaded guilty. Uh, Carolyn Ellison to seven counts, including wire fraud. Uh, Gary Wang, four counts, including wire fraud, money laundering. Uh, wire fraud, money laundering in her case as well. Uh, so given the seven counts, given the sentencing rubric, Remember, judges are no longer required to sentence based on the guidelines. Well, they have to base it on the guidelines, but they're not, they don't have to use the score and sentence directly to that any longer based on a Supreme Court decision. Depending on the judge he ends up with for trial uh, and sentencing, you know, he's looking at best case scenario, say 21 years if he pleads and cooperates quickly. Uh, she is looking at seven to 10, say he's looking at, you know, five, seven, 10 years. It's looking very bad for them with regards to how this all works. So um, somebody writes in the comments here, speaking of FTX, Jacob, I watched Arbitrage the other day as recommended. The movie is uncanny, just like 2022. Russia conflict, Dow drop, cusp of recession, accounting fraud rampant. Yeah, if you want to understand how these crypto exchanges operate in a way that's pretty simple and entertaining, watch that film Arbitrage with Richard Gere. Excellent, excellent movie. Really uh, just a fun, fun movie. It, it has twists and turns and you'll love it. You will love it. Um, okay, uh, continuing on here. Um, Zelensky has, of course, made his way to the U.S., arriving yesterday in Washington, D.C. Uh, he addressed Congress. He met with Joe Biden uh, he brought along the defense secretary of Ukraine, who was seen wearing that uh, uh, diamond bracelet with swastikas on it. He was brought along as well, that Nazi who runs the defense forces of Ukraine. And this comes, of course, as Biden has now committed to giving Ukraine uh, the Patriot missile defense system, included in a new $2 billion package that will be sent over to Ukraine. I think it's important to point out the Patriot missile defense system, you know, sort of designed to be both anti-aircraft and have the ability to shoot down missiles. 
Uh, it doesn't seem to really be able to shoot down missiles, certainly not ballistic missiles, but not even cruise missiles, which are essentially very small aircraft. Um, it has just failed over and over again in Saudi Arabia. Uh, when they get missiles that come in from Yemen, from the Houthi rebels, the Iranian-backed Houthis, the uh, Patriot system has been very unsuccessful in shooting them down. I don't think it's ever shot one down successfully. It tries, it just isn't able to do it. Is that down to the technology? Is it down to the training? I'm inclined to say probably it's down to the technology. I don't know. They point out here in the Washington Post that you know, typically a Patriot battery has up to eight launchers that each hold between four and 16 missiles, depending on the type of munition used. U.S. forces will train Ukrainians to operate and maintain the system in a third country, presumably Germany, it says. Uh, okay, could be Poland, could be Germany, I guess. And this will take some time, the official said, but Ukrainian troops will take that training back to their country to operate this battery. It is unlikely that the air defense system will arrive in Ukraine before spring. You know, so it's going to take some time to pack this thing up and get it onto a C5 Galaxy or whatever you'd bring it in on and then, you know, truck it in from Poland. I don't know why Putin would tolerate us trucking it in from Poland and not destroy it, given his position on the entire war. Zelensky has sought the Patriot missile defense system for months. Uh, one of the dangers with this system is if you have poorly trained people that are uh, incompetent or they are exhausted and they should be taking a break, they can take a Patriot system and they can shoot down a commercial airliner uh, and, 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 and send people to the ground. And, and send them to the ground dead. So that's a big concern. The United States has about 90 troops assigned to a typical Patriot battery. So this is an advanced system to run. You can look at the schematics from Raytheon, etc. if you want to see how this works. Raytheon, I used to live basically down the street from Raytheon's headquarters. Uh, they're in great demand and short supply, apparently. Currently in use by 16 countries, the Patriot system. I don't know why. It's not a great system. Uh, previously, the United States brokered a deal where Slovakia, a NATO ally, sent its only S-300 air, def air defense system to Ukraine. In exchange, NATO deployed Patriot units to Slovakia. The Pentagon also has sent service-to-air missiles known as Hawks, or homing all-the-way killer. Uh, you know, this is really a system that doesn't work terribly well. Of course, there's the man pads, kind of handheld systems uh, that don't work nearly to as high an altitude accuracy or destructiveness. So that's happening now. More money getting sent over to Ukraine. Zelensky telling Congress that $50 billion is not enough, bringing in the Ukrainian flag signed by soldiers, presumably gifting it to them. They gift him an American flag. You know, uh, it, it is something where the winter has been pretty mild so far. Europe has stocked up on natural gas to the extent that they can. I think it's really a question of what's January going to look like. We've got this big, they say, bomb cyclone coming in here to the Midwest and East Coast to some degree. Just rain today here in D.C. Uh, no no uh, snow to speak of, no ice. That was forecast that we'd get blizzards this week. So far, no blizzards. Uh, but this is what's happening we will see what happens. I mean, I, you're getting a lot of really over-the-top commentary from people on this topic. This is what it is, okay? 
why would Zelensky not ask for more money if he can? Is he pilfering some of it into his own coffers? Of course. I mean, but it seemed that he had already done that prior to this war even beginning based on foreign aid and Ukraine's own uh, assets. I mean, he, he had some $800 million in Panama in various offshore jurisdictions as leaked in the Pandora Papers and the Panama Papers. He already had $800 million pilfered from Ukraine's own coffers before the U.S. ever got involved in this. Does he need to take another billion? Maybe. I mean, I would guess it's probably not even him who takes most of it. It's other functionaries. It's other people uh, within Ukraine. If you had $800 billion, there's really no incentive to take any more, or $800 million, rather. There's no incentive to take much more. But uh, that's what's happening. Also, we have a story out about Trump's taxes. Uh, recently on the show, I talked about how the House Oversight Committee finally got a hold of Trump's taxes based on the Supreme Court saying they could have them, his tax returns from the IRS, closely guarded secrets. He had sued for years over this. They finally got a hold of them. And I had stated that, well... You know, it, it, there must not be much there because they haven't leaked yet. Well, yes, they haven't leaked exactly, but basically what the House Oversight Committee has done. And by the way, the House Oversight Committee is not the committee which handles taxation. That's the House Ways and Means Committee. So, of course, the House Oversight Committee can conduct oversight on the IRS, which is ostensibly what they're doing here. But when it comes to who actually writes the tax laws, the tax policies, the rules, that would be the House Ways and Means Committee, just FYI, with some play in from appropriations when it comes to, you know, how the IRS is, is funded. So they finally did get a hold of these tax returns. Media is making a big deal out of the fact that, as you see here in the graphic, uh, you know, you have a situation which Trump, say, loses, you know, anywhere between $30 million and you know, 32 and $12 million a year, makes $4 million one year, makes, uh, what is this, $24 million and 18. That was probably from, you know, in big part from the Trump Hotel, which I think cleared about $40 million in profits. But these are people who don't understand, you know, the, the, the taxes of a real estate tycoon, of a real estate conglomerate, a real estate organization. The way that that whole game works is that to make any money, it's really entirely dependent on various sorts of write-offs, write-downs, tax credits, etc. If you rejigger the taxation system to not allow for writing off of various sorts of expenses, to not allow for uh, writing down of various kinds of losses to not allow for, for instance, 1031 exchanges, which is where people buy one property. Let's say they've made some money on it. They can sell that property, roll in whatever proceeds uh, they get from that sale, and then buy into another property under a certain structure and set of rules and not pay the capital gains tax on the profits from the uh, property that they had sold at a profit. That's called the 1031 exchange. Various other kinds of instruments exist. That's the main one. This was done when the tax code was rejiggered uh, in the late 90s, is really what, it, what relates to real estate here, 
And of course, Trump brought in things like opportunity zones, and it's kind of a non-issue. Major corporations like Target use those to build a target and get tax credits back for doing it. But if you didn't have all of these cutouts and write-downs and write-throughs and uh, you know vehicles that are set up in the tax code, it would be almost impossible to make any money in real estate. It would be almost impossible. It would come down to buying low, selling high, like somebody would do in the stock market. You see, because people who are making this kind of money in real estate, you think of them as real estate investors. Well, uh, they're, they're not real estate investors in the sense that you are a stock market investor if you buy a share of Apple. You buy a share of Apple, it's interchangeable with it's interchangeable with any other share of Apple. Apple's management continues running Apple, regardless of whether you bought that share or didn't buy that share. Sure, if you somehow bought enough of those shares in the right share class, etc., you could exert some control over, you know, board seats and things when it comes to Apple. But essentially, you buying the share doesn't affect the asset. Now, when it comes to real estate, though. Uh, most people who are consistently making any kind of money in real estate are not merely investors. Very hard, as we're going to lay out in the next segment, to buy low, sell high in real estate. Because the markets are so disparate. In, in one market that was really hot for 10 years, just dies. In another market that was dead for 10 years, takes off. And if you can time that perfectly, you know, good luck to you. But the bottom line is that 99% of people cannot and the people that are really making money consistently over decades in real estate are real estate operators. Yes, buying the asset and buying a good asset is a part of it. But half the time, these people are as much in the construction business as they are in the buying the asset business. They're as much in the fundraising business to get the loans, get the debt, sometimes get equity partners in the deal as they are in the buy the asset business. And they're as much in the you know, be a landlord, slumlord, whatever lord, uh, operations, maintenance, collecting bills, etc. business as they are in the buy the asset business. So, you know, the stock market, the bond market, these are markets where really it comes down to the buy. It really comes down to buying right, buying at the right price, buying at the right time, buying the right thing little components of hedging and sometimes you sell, sometimes you don't. But real estate is is a nightmarish market from that standpoint. Uh, it's it's almost impossible to do that. And so unless you make use of these tax cutouts, which are associated with that operations piece, for the most part, there's things like the 1031 exchange I talked about. It's just about impossible to make any money in this business long term. Now, you see, Trump here uh, takes a, you know, let's say $30 million loss in a particular year or $12 million loss. That's the net income. So if you look at the net income he lost, but he can hold the portfolio that has losses in net income, that portfolio, the way it's structured within companies could have actually paid him personally, uh, let's say different amounts of money, paid for different things in his life. And then what could also be the case is that the uh, on paper appraised value of that portfolio could have increased 50 million in that year. He can then take loans out against that increased value of the equity, which he does. It's all been publicly disclosed before and any competent real estate investor does. 
Maybe they're at a low interest rate. That's been the case for many years, not so much anymore. Now we're kind of at average interest rates historically, maybe slightly below average even still. And the money that comes in from those loans uh, is not taxable. It is not income. So anyway, we're not going to spend an endless amount of time talking about you know, real estate portfolios here and real estate taxes, but that's really what explains the Trump story. Okay, now moving on here, uh, There's speaking of real estate, there, there's an article out in The Atlantic that says uh, the homeownership society was a mistake. Now, I've seen conservatives, many people already attacking this article and saying, you know, this is yet another World Economic Forum, own nothing, be happy article. And anybody who attacks this article from that standpoint clearly didn't read the article. I did. It's very long. I'm not going to read you the whole thing. But there's a number of points in here that I think are very useful for all of us. Very useful for all of us. And uh, I want to go over a few of them here. And this is not you will own nothing and be happy propaganda. Uh, but there's there's a lot of valuable information. Now, one thing is there's a lot of points in here about racial inequities, racial this, why are black neighborhoods worth less? They're, they're asking questions that they know the answer to, and they're just feigning ignorance and pretending that it's racism to blame for this stuff. So notwithstanding the social justice warrior components of this article, there's a lot of good uh, factual information. Uh, Jerusalem Demis, uh, the, the author of this piece, writes, this is my central critique. At the margin, pushing more people into, into homeownership, is actu- it actually undermines our ability to improve housing outcomes for all. And crucially, it doesn't even consistently deliver on ownership's core promise of providing financial security. So that's the, the core promise. That's the question I care about here. There's this idea that is propounded that uh, being a homeowner is going to provide you with financial security. Oftentimes, people say it even make you rich, make you wealthy. Now, first of all, when you deal with the net worth calculation for purposes of you know getting high-level loans and things, your home is not even factored into that at the high levels. It's it's your, where you live is not even considered an asset because you have to live there, and it costs you money every month. I mean, it's always something costing money every month. So it's not considered an asset. Um, that's the first thing. Now, uh, here's a section of this. It said, luck isn't an investment strategy. As the economist Joe Courtright explained for the website City Observatory, housing is a good investment if you buy at the right time, buy in the right place, get a fair deal on financing, and aren't excessively vulnerable to market swings. Those are a lot of special conditions. This latter point is particularly important. Although higher income Americans may be able to weather job losses or other financial emergencies without selling their home, many other people don't have that option. Wealth building through homeownership requires selling at the right time. And research indicates that longer tenures in a home translate to lower returns. So you you hear that? The longer you stay in a home, the lower the return. But the right time to sell may not line up with the right time for you to move. Buying low and selling high when the asset we are talking about is where you live is pretty absurd advice. People want to live near family, near good schools, near parks, and in neighborhoods with the type of amenities they desire, not trade their location like penny stocks. It's all true. A home is bound to a specific geographic location, vulnerable to local economic and environmental shocks that could wipe out the value of the land or the structure itself right when you need it. The economic forces that have juiced demand to live in America's coastal cities are extremely strong. 
But one of the pandemic's enduring legacies may be a large-scale shift of many workers to remote environments, thereby reducing the value of living near business districts of superstar cities. Making bets on real estate is a tricky business. During the 1990s, Cleveland's house prices outpaced both the national average and San Francisco's. That's just unbelievable. How confident are you that you can predict the ways in which urban geography will shift over your tenancy. I think that's a good point. I mean, I, that's unbelievable to me. And of course, we know over the last, say, 20 years or so, Cleveland home prices have been anemic at best. So it talks about timing being the factor. Uh, paying off a mortgage is a form of forced savings, in which people save by paying for shelter rather than consciously putting money aside. According to a report by The Economist at the National Association of Realtors, looking at the housing market from 2011 to 2021, however, price appreciation accounts for roughly 86% of the wealth associated with owning a home. That means almost all of the gains come not from paying down a mortgage, money that you literally put into the home, but from rising price tags outside of any individual homeowner's control. That's true. So people don't really have any wealth creation on average that happens from the involuntary savings of the home. They have some wealth creation sometimes when the price goes up a lot, but thinking you're going to be the Persian that buys Beverly Hills real estate in 1978 and it goes up 50 million percent, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not likely. It's not likely at all, especially, and it becomes less likely every year. You have to understand as, as more of the country gets built out, as more regions of the country become known quantities, makes less and less sense. But it, it's important to remember, this is something that is very much a generational thing, a unique generational thing. Uh, Gen Xers that bought homes in the early 2000s have not seen this kind of price appreciation for the most part in most parts of this country. It's really a boomer phenomenon. And, and the boomers are often in the position where they say, it worked for me, it'll work for you. And oftentimes that's not true. Millions of baby boomers were, were blessed with just sort of having the right timing when real estate cost almost nothing. I mean, a lot of people bought houses for almost nothing. I was into a video guy recently bought his house, his first house in San Francisco in a nice neighborhood for $238,000. It's almost free. It's almost free. I mean, you can't buy a, you couldn't buy a, a post office box for that much. Not that you'd buy it, but you understand the point. And they had great timing in the stock market too. They didn't have to go out and invest in, you know, totally speculative, uh, you know, Fruit Loop assets to make high returns. I mean, look at Merck. Merck is up 4,850% from the time it IPO'd in 1982. Not IPOing with like promises of changing the world through AI, but just saying we make good drugs. People seem to be buying them. Here's our stock if you want to buy in. If you had put $10,000 in Merck stock uh, in December of 1983 and reinvested the dividends, it would be worth $1.4 million today. How many Merck opportunities have there been recently where you didn't have to invest in a company that was a money loser? For 20 years before it did anything. Very few. Uh, they write here, relying on a single asset isn't smart. The core benefit of homeownership is meant to offer financial security, yet in numerous ways, it actually exposes homeowners to more risk. By concentrating wealth in one asset, middle-class homeowners are particularly exposed to regional economic and environmental shocks. And they name a few of those possibilities. They point out also that this is not the way that very wealthy people kind of divide their assets. You look here at this chart, and for those of you just listening, it shows that 
essentially uh, very wealthy people, their home is a very, very small percentage of their overall money. The article continues here basically talking about this and uh, describing how this works and how you have to pour mon more money than you think into a house if you buy it. It also is the case if you rent it, by the way, you have to buy furnishing and this and that and curtains and all this stuff. Uh, here's the other part about this is that, you know, your house can become the government's house very quickly in America. Uh, under civil forfeiture, they don't even need to prove an allegation. Simply making an allegation, simply having a probable cause standard is enough for the government to seize your house under civil forfeiture. Various state laws may allow you to still live in the home for the period that they seize it. By the way, still paying the mortgage. Um, so the house is an asset that's very sensitive. You buy a great big house all cash and it's very likely that you, know, you get into a lawsuit, you get into something... It's just so easy to find out that you own that home and so easy to take it out from under you. Very easy. Whereas if you rent, well, you rent. It's just not an asset they can snatch from you. So look, of course, there are various benefits of owning a home. You already know what they are. Uh, but I think that it, you should think about the benefits as consumption benefits, not as investment benefits. Are there consumption benefits? Sure. I mean, you could rent a house, and they could say, yeah, we decide we want to sell it. Um, you know, we, we, we can't renew your lease. Well, that sucks. Now you got to move everything all over again. You know, it took you three months probably to get settled in, and now you got to move once again. That's a pain. Your rent could be raised out of nowhere to a great degree. That's a pain. I mean, but these are all upsides and downsides with respect to consumption. The criticism is not about those upsides and downsides with regards to consumption. That's a different topic. It's a different episode of this show. But the, the real analysis here is that this idea that, you know, home ownership is the key to financial security or the key to getting wealthy, oh, it just doesn't seem to be very true. It's, it's, it's certainly not for most people most of the time. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's something to keep in mind here. Um, so anyway, that, that's that article there. Okay, before we wrap up here, uh, I want to talk about this segment with uh, Uncle Joe. Well, in fact, he's talking about his uncle, Joe Biden is. Uh, President Biden appears to make a major gaffe claiming that, uh, well, let's play the clip here and I'll get into it. On the Finnegan side of the family, four brothers, every single one volunteered the very next day on Monday to join. My uncle, Frank Biden, joined. My father was working in the shipyards. The fact of the matter is that, um, you know, uh, it wasn't a second thought. It just showed up. And it's a generation represented by you, Ray, that uh, doesn't look for uh, accolades. You know, I, uh, my dad, when I got elected vice president, he said, Joey, Uncle Frank fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He was not feeling very well now, not because of the Battle of the Bulge, but he said, and he won the Purple Heart. And he never received it. He never, he never got it. Do you think you could help him get it? We'll surprise him. So he got him the Purple Heart. He had won it in the Battle of the Bulge. And I remember he came over to the house, and I came out, and he said, present it to him. Okay, we had the family there. I said, Uncle Frank, you won this, and I went to him. He said, I don't want the damn thing. <laughs> no, I'm serious. He said, I don't want it. I said, what's the matter, Uncle Frank? You earned it. He said, yeah, but the others died. 
The others died. I lived. I don't want it. There's Joe Biden, you know, I mean, telling this story. And the reason that this story is a problem is that, well, first of all, Joe's father wasn't alive in 2008 when he was elected vice president. His father died in 2002. And his uncle Frank died in 1999. So this story couldn't possibly be true. I got to tell you, this story, like many stories of, you know, valor in the military, uh, well, they're not all that true. And, you know, especially some of us great grandparents talk about, you know, their stories of war. Look, spoiler alert, a lot of those stories aren't true. Okay. A lot of people go to war. A lot of people are deployed overseas. Uh, they know people maybe next to them that got to go outside the wire and do interesting stuff. Maybe they hear about it. They don't really do anything interesting at all. And yet when they come back from some faraway land, people expect them to have stories. And so they make some up or they, you know, take someone else's story, make it theirs. Happens all the time. Happens constantly. So, you know, who knows what of this is true, but it is so so typical for Joe Biden to make up these kind of stories and for a lot of these people to do this. But uh, there's uh, Uncle Joe talking about his Uncle Frank in a story that is, you know, totally nonsensical. Totally nonsensical. Uh, somebody writes you in the chat, good point. I bought my home in Charlotte in for 164K in 06, refi at 185 two years later. When I went to sell in 2011, I couldn't sell for 109K. Let them go ahead and foreclose. Yeah, and, and like you go look up the value of that house today, and I bet you it's it's not even that much higher. Maybe it's, what is it back to now? Maybe 200, 202? That's the thing. When the market goes down, a lot of neighborhoods just never come back. A lot of the values of homes just never come back. They're perfectly good houses. They work well. Nice places to live, but the, as an investment vehicle, they just never come back. They're just dead money. So you can choose to have a great percentage of your net worth wrapped up in dead money. Um, like I said, certain other consumption benefits as well, but it's um, it's uh, kind of kind of strange. So, anyway, guys, um, thanks uh, for watching. I will see you on Monday. Have a wonderful Merry Christmas, and I'll be back Monday, 2 p.m. live here on The Jacob Wolf Show. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.